I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up later in the Clark Rage, unbelievable. Someone pays into a pension all through the years working somewhere, and then their widow doesn't get the money. A key lesson for you about paperwork at work. And later, Amazon now is not building an H2, HQ2 in New York City. What's that about? How does that affect you and me? Believe it or not, significantly, I'm going to tell you what you need to know for your wallet, regardless of where you live across these great United States. So something not so great in the United States, I'm looking at a chart that was in Barron's magazine of defaults on auto loans. And the chart has skyrocketed to where the number of borrowers significantly delinquent on their auto loans or vehicle loans, SUV loans, car loans, whatever we call them now, is actually much higher than it was even at the peak of the financial scandals, the banking scandals of last decade through the Great Recession, that people are at all-time record high levels of delinquency on vehicle loans. And there are a couple of factors here that are very important for you to know if you decide to shop for wheels. So people are getting crushed because so often when people go to buy a vehicle, they're what's known as a payment buyer. They are just thinking in terms of what payment they can afford per month in their budget. But they're not really thinking through the total cost of the vehicle they're getting and how many months that equates to in years they're taking out a loan for. And there's simple formulas that people do. You know, I talk about taking out no auto loan longer than 42 months. Others in my field talk about taking out no loan longer than 48 months. But nobody, nobody, not a single humanoid who does financial advice, consumer advice, will ever tell you to take out any vehicle loan longer than 48 months. Period. It's not going to happen. Because if you do this for a living, you know the consequences of somebody taking out a loan longer than 48 months. Again, I always say 42. The reason is, is that if you take out a loan longer than that, you're always upside down on the loan meaning you owe more on it than what the vehicle's worth. Which means if something happens in your life, you're trapped. And that's why the number of people delinquent on their loans is two and a half times what it was 10 years ago. Two and a half times. I mean, this is brutal how many people are getting crushed by having the long, long, long loans. Added into that, and the reason people are taking out the long loans 
is the average cost of a vehicle is estimated to have hit a new all-time record high. One estimate says when the new numbers come out that it will be an average vehicle cost topping $37,000. So to buy something that unbelievably expensive, you may turn around and, without even realizing it, sign up for a financial suicide loan that will be six years or seven years long. And so that is hideous for your wallet. But there's a third factor now as well, and that is the interest rate on car loans, and when I say car, I mean any kind of vehicle, has gone up significantly over the last year. And I want to share a key stat with you. Credit union loans, the default rate on credit union loans is 1%. 1% versus what's happening in the general marketplace, which is a gigantic problem right now. So there are a few factors why credit union loans almost never default. Because credit unions are there owned by and for their members. They're not just trying to sell a vehicle off a lot. They're not going to want to have you in a loan you're going to fail in. The interest rate on the credit union loan will be massively lower in rate than what you're going to get at a bank or get at a dealer, period. And even as interest rates have risen, the credit union loan rates are still going to be much better. But wait, there's more. The credit union, unless they've lost their mind, are not going to let you take out a loan that's ultra long that you're going to paint yourself into a corner with and you're going to end up with the credit union you're a member of having to repo that vehicle. They don't want to repo that vehicle. A lot of the banks look at the ah well factor. Yeah, well, we know 10% of our borrowers are going to fail and we're just going to repo and we're going to sell those vehicles, but we're charging such huge interest rates, it's not going to hurt us because everybody else is going to be paying all that interest. That's not how the credit union mentality works. But even if you have never found a credit union you like, when you're going to buy a vehicle, pre-qualify for that loan first. Go to your bank, inferior choice, but go to a bank, or better yet, go to a credit union, pre-qualify for the financing, and they're going to do everything they can to keep you from ruining your finances, where... Otherwise, nobody really cares about the consequence for you. So you're the one who's got to care. You're also less likely to make a rapid emotional decision if you have to get pre-approved for a loan first and you realistically approach buying a vehicle based on what monthly payment you can afford for, remember, 42 months or less. If you can't afford the payment on a 42-month loan, You can't afford the vehicle you're looking at, period. So let's go to and ask Clark right now. 
Let's do that, Clark. Dan wrote in and he said, I have a slightly different take on Social Security than you do, and I think it might be worth thinking about. I happen to be 54, and if I wait until 70 to collect, it just happens to be the year 2034, and that's when Social Security can only afford to pay out 75% of its benefits. I'm thinking I would be better off to take the money at 62 and invest it until I need it. My break-even is currently about uh, the year when I turn 80, and if I invest that money from ages 62 to 70, even averaging 4%, I think I could add many more years to that break-even date. What do you think? So that's a very interesting scenario based on Social Security no longer being able to meet its promises and obligations. And although uh, there is the slight possibility of that, Social Security is so important to voters and people of the age eligible or near age eligible for Social Security are much more likely to participate in elections, much more likely to uh, contribute to candidates, it is extremely unlikely that the Congress will not come up with a fix. So let me put it another way. The odds are overwhelming that Congress will come up with a fix for the deficit with Social Security that we have in the United States. And let's see if I can talk with Sam now. Nope, I can't. So we have a a technical problem that we're going to see we're going to try something right now and see if we can fix what's going on. Just so you know, I'm not able to pull up callers myself right now till we fix the technical problem. But I think we have Sam now. Sam? Hi, Clark, can you hear me? I sure can. How are you, Sam? I'm doing wonderful, Clark. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to say thank you, as well as I wanted to thank your coworkers for working with my time schedule. It is you know, I very, really appreciate that. Well, sure. I don't know anything about what they've done, but I'm glad that we were able to come up with a time that fit your schedule to go on the air with me, Sam. So uh, how can I serve you? All right. So I am a United States postal worker. I am a mail carrier. And uh, we uh, they offer us a TSP. And I was curious as to which TSPS should be going into, or should I go private? So the TSP is the best retirement plan pretty much anybody in America has. And uh, federal workers, postal workers, and military personnel all have access to the thrift savings plan. And the thrift savings plan is superior even to uh, many of the best 401k plans that people have who work for private employers because the fee structure on the TSP is so favorable. You cannot duplicate it on your own anywhere. So participating in the TSP is great. And you'll have to educate me. Are postal service workers eligible for any match for contributions to a TSP? Yes, they offer 100% of 5%. So without even thinking about it, you want to put in minimum 5%, pick up the 5% match. Okay, and um, they offer a traditional or a Roth. I was curious which one I should do. So how old are you, Sam? I'm 30, about to be 31. Uh, I would absolutely want you to do the Roth version. Even though you'll have no tax deduction up front, the advantage for you long term is you're not going to have to worry about any of that money being taxed 
down the road that you have contributed, the money that the, that the Postal Service matches will be taxed down the road. Okay, so, and, um, so let me tell you part. why that's so important. Because it okay. means that when you reach retirement, you'll have two piles of money. You'll have your pre-tax pile that is the match offered by the Postal Service, and you'll have your post-tax money that you have contributed. And in retirement, being able to pick and choose which pile to take from based on your current tax situation each year in retirement is a secret ingredient that you'll have available to you. I didn't know that. That's, that's good to hear. And you have a choice of the life cycle funds is one of the choices in that TSP, right? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, what type of fund should I be putting my money into? All of it into the life cycle fund. Okay. Because okay. What, what they will do, the managers of the TSP plan, will automatically adjust the mix of investments in that life cycle uh, plan, just like happens with a traditional um, 401k that would have a target retirement fund. So it gets you the right mix of investments and appropriate for your age at nearly almost 31. And so that is the right strategy. And I'd love it if you can put in more than 5% and pick up the 5% match. The more you put in, the more comfort you're going to have down the road when you do choose to bag work. Today's Clark Rageous moment is an important heads up for you if you have benefits through a place you work. The paperwork that seems so obscure sometimes can trip up the best of intentions. And I want to tell you a story I read in the local newspaper in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's about a guy who died suddenly who was a professor at New Mexico State University. So when he died, he... he thought his wife was going to be in great shape. You know, they talked about everything he had and all that. And then she uh, contacted the university about receiving his pension. Well, the pension he'd paid, participated in paying into all through the years, she's not going to get. Nobody's going to get it. The state of New Mexico is going to keep the money. Why? Because a simple form that required his name, and his designated beneficiary either was never filled out or no one can find it. And so the state shrugged its shoulders and said, you're not going to get any money. The worst part is his widow, Libby, has MS, needs care, and is having to sell her home and move in with her parents because without the pension, she's flat out of luck. Wherever you work, if you have benefits attached to it, Whatever it is, you get life insurance from where you work. You maybe are lucky enough to work at a place that has a pension or any type of insurance products. You've got to make sure that the paperwork has properly been completed so that your intended beneficiary will receive that money. In many of these cases with employer plans, what you've put in your will doesn't matter. It has to be done by a beneficiary designation. Another thing, you always want to have a copy of your paperwork that you've done with your employer. Because if you don't have that paperwork done and 
have the additional step of documentation proving you've done the paperwork, your survivors may be left high and dry. Imagine passing away feeling at least at peace that your wife will be okay and then it turns out she's not and she's financially ruined because of one signature on one form. So you get those things once a year typically from an employer. You want to make sure you fill them out, fill them out right, and always have a copy. Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. And our web address, Clark.com. So I expressed to you about six weeks ago how frustrated I was with these arms races that go on around the country to try to pay corporate welfare. That's where one city or state tries to bribe a company to leave another city or state to come to them. And so Amazon, which paid no taxes last year, by the way, Amazon was offered billions of dollars by various states and cities around the country to get their HQ2, which is actually HQ2 divided by two, with Northern Virginia getting one of the, one half of the second location, and then Long Island City and Queens, New York, was supposed to get the other one. But there was a huge uproar in New York and all kinds of backstabbing and arguing and griping because Amazon was like, hey, you don't want us? We're not coming. And so they walked away from the $3 billion because everybody hated them. And so they, they aren't going. And, you know, the thing is, we as a country in a time of enormous economic inequality are really, really showing low IQ when we pay these bribes to big corporations, giving them billions of dollars in welfare to try to steal jobs from somewhere else in our great nation to move somewhere else. So companies can play off one city against another, one state against another, and it is a loser's game for everybody but that particular company. And states would be much uh, more wise. that be how you say it? I started to use bad grammar, much wiser. Anyway, it would be a much better idea for states, instead of trying to land the big score with a high-profile company, instead to do things to improve the uh, educational attainment of the workforce in a state, the infrastructure in a state, to use money that would go to incentives maybe to lower taxes across the board for businesses to make it a, a more business-friendly environment. There are many better uses than deciding winners and losers. Think about this whole silly thing with Amazon. Amazon controls half of all online sales in the United States. Is it really a good idea for in a capitalist system for the most powerful player in online sales to be given more money 
to subsidize their operations to make it difficult for others to compete against them. I mean, from a capitalist standpoint, that's choosing winners and losers, and that's unhealthy by itself. There were some people in the New York metro area who were anti-capitalist, and they opposed Amazon because they opposed capitalism, and that is something that you, you, you've listened to me for any period of time. You know how intensely free enterprise I am. And as a free enterpriser, I object so much to government giving welfare to specific companies. And we would be much healthier as a country if this bidding war among jurisdictions stopped. And maybe this is the beginning of a clear understanding about how rotten terrible it is to actually have these subsidies. But Ian gets the last word because, Ian, you are a New Yorker. What part of New York State are you from? Uh, Central New York. So what anybody in New York City would refer to as upstate if you were more than 20 miles (laughs) north of the Bronx. (laughs) Yes. So from where you sit in Central New York, what did you think of all the fuss going on in New York City about Amazon? Um, honestly, I've heard about it in the news, but I haven't really paid attention to it much. I understand that there was like a back out and people were a little upset. So, I mean, it, there's always a debate between upstate and downstate and all that. And I don't know. <laughs> I guess I need to read up more on it. Okay. That's fair and honest. So what's going on with you, Ian? Well, on the advice of your show, I ended up getting renter's insurance to cover my girlfriend and I, and it's relatively inexpensive, about 10 bucks a month, so it's manageable. Um, but the insurance person is kind of pushing higher coverage, and I kind of, I mean, they're obviously incentivized to do that, and I'm trying to get a sense of what would be a, the right amount of coverage for my situation. Well, first of all, an agent doesn't really have enough financial incentive on a rental policy to be doing something just to pad their pocket because the commissions on a renter's insurance policy are so teensy tiny. The agent almost certainly believes the advice you're getting is the right advice, but I still may respectfully disagree. Do you have $25,000 in contents coverage at your $10 a month? Is that what you're at? Yes. Yeah, so that's a standard renter's policy is you pay ten or fifteen and you get $25,000. So mm-hmm. what's the agent recommending to you as coverages? Um, maybe just a little bit more increased with the personal liability, which is at 100000 right now, which seems like a high number. Um, and well, then except if one person... Others, it's around 1000 Yeah, so if you have one person coming to visit you and they somehow get hurt, uh, medical bills could way blow past 100000 And so mm-hmm. that's what the agent's looking at. But then I look at something else. You and your girlfriend, what kind of assets do the two of you have? Um, honestly, I haven't gotten around to calculate it. Are you talking about like what I own? Yeah, what you have versus you know investments, uh, money in the bank, whatever. Are you are you just loaded with money? Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, her and I are teachers, so okay, not you're really. not loaded <laughs> with money. So the hundred thousand in your case probably is going to be sufficient. Because nobody's looking to see how they can empty the accounts of a teacher because they don't expect you to have a lot. Mm -hmm. So 
the alternative you were that was recommended to you would take you like another five dollars a month and get you up to a quarter million. Is that probably yes? Okay, so it's not going to be a material difference for your wallet if you pay fifteen a month instead of ten and go from a hundred to two fifty. And I mean, you could do that if you wanted to, but I would imagine that if you and your girlfriend aren't sitting on piles of money, Mm -hmm. that the hundred is adequate. Okay. So being from central New York, I just need to know, are you Yankees or Red Sox? Patriots? I am neither. I'm a Met fan, and uh, I would have to thank my uh, dad for that. (laughs) Uh, See, I didn't even think about the Mets, because they haven't (laughs) won anything since 1969. Yes, yeah, and I'm also a Jet fan, too, so the last time they won the Super Bowl was in 1969, so that was a good year for my father. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? It's been a long time. Uh, Chad's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Chad. Hey, Clark. It's an honor to be on. Well, great to have you here, Chad. How can I be of service to you? Uh, First, I'd like to say thanks. Our kids have grown up with you uh, since they were in uh, car seats (laughs) and uh, listening on the road. So uh, That's pretty uh, cruel to your kids. Let me tell you, that's really not nice or fair to your kids. I mean, they had no (laughs) control over the dial, and you forced them, punished them to have to listen to me. They're Clark smart. They're 15 and 17. So so now they don't mind uh, it so much? No, no. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, years years of getting used to it. Okay. <laughs> uh, my, my question, Clark, is as we move into retirement and our incomes, uh, reportable income goes down, the credit card companies uh, ask from time to time what our current income is. And so I'm wondering what people do uh, either now or in full retirement to still qualify for the latest and greatest credit cards that you recommend. The only reason we use them is for cashback bonus. Um, you know, so if you have sufficient assets to, to, of course, pay for them, do credit card companies take that into account? Um, yeah, so let's talk or, that through. So one of the things that will say on a credit card application is it will ask salary at a job or whatever, and then it will ask uh, other sources of household income. So that's where a retiree is able to show reasonable and honest levels of of true cash flow and income under that other household sources of income. So if you have uh, any kind of pension or you're doing... Uh, you're generating money, however you're generating it, that's where you supply that information. And credit card companies with an aging population, we, you know, we have, I forget how many tens of thousands of people turn 65 now every day. We're a graying population. And the credit card industry has had to adjust to that. And they're looking primarily at your credit score. Okay. Because certainly with the income component, it's never, it's not likely to be as high as your working years. Uh, you still have assets to draw on, but but even in that other category, the taxable income itself is not right. Um, so what you may find, you may find that initially, a credit card company gives you a lower credit limit, 
than you would have received if you were still at a place of employment. And your timing of this uh, question is so perfect because my sister-in-law, who's retired, was just concerned about this, applied for a card, and just received one, even though she's in retirement, that was an airline reward card that she just wasn't sure if she was going to make it through the approval process. And that's not scientific, but she just went through the same scenario and was approved. I see. And for the current cards you have that from time to time request a, a income, um, I just haven't answered those emails. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I don't know how long how long you can put them off, but but well, you, know, you, you worry about them dropping your credit limit substantially, right? Uh, so the credit limit drops will happen when the default rates start rising significantly on credit cards, I and see. that happens as we get closer to the next recession. And that's when the credit card companies start freaking out and they start looking through their portfolios and uh, and they will reduce limits on people who've done nothing wrong at all. But the greatest reductions in limits and the greatest possibility that your credit line will be closed, they'll shut down your card, is if you're not using a card at all or just using it minimally. If it's a card that you use routinely, you're paying the bill um, as agreed, you're not nearly as likely to have the limit reduced, even when the credit card companies do start freaking out. I understand, and I do use them every six months, as you recommend for a for a uh, you know a small purchase. And that will normally protect you, depending on the severity of default rates and how deep the next recession will be. Who knows if that's going to be enough of a safe harbor for us? But we'll have to wait and see how aggressive the credit card companies are in reducing their outstanding available credit on people. Tim is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tim. Hey, Clark. How are you today? Great, thank you. You are uh, thinking of going on a vacation that's got you nervous now. Tell me. Yes, we are planning on the next couple of months of traveling to Cancun, Mexico. And we're just wondering what your thoughts are on safety. Well, one of our team members is going to Cancun this weekend with, uh, with family and kids. And this is so in the news right now because there was the execution-style uh, shootings in Mexico. Was that Saturday? Sunday? I forget when. And uh, it was brutal. And it, there's been a wave of drug gang violence all across Mexico. So people who have travel plans to Cancun are suddenly like, what am I doing? So Exactly. Uh, have you been to Cancun before? I have, but it's, it's been a few years. All right. So you know, yeah. having been to Cancun, there's the uh, tourist corridor with the resorts that is a thin line that runs for, gosh, how many miles is that? It runs many, many miles. Yes. Yes. And then... Uh, inland several miles is where all those workers actually live who work at those resorts. It's also where the gangs have infested the community and there's been these turf wars and this almost certainly was a turf war. So it's not for me to tell you, oh, go right ahead, nothing to worry about. But from a practical standpoint, 
the tourists have not been in the crossfire at all unless people have strayed far and away from the resort settings. Right. Well, my thought is there. I felt the same way, but I wondered if, say, we decided we want to go out fishing or something or out of the ocean. Are we taking the chance doing that? Don't know. I've not heard of any issues involving people that are out uh, doing pleasure boating or doing right. deep sea fishing as an issue. Okay. So well, uh, uh, the, the U.S. government has no restrictions at all on the actual tourist corridor. You know, and, but there is a general warning, obviously, for the state in Mexico where Cancun and Cozumel are. And right. I've been to uh, the Yucatan of Mexico many times where we dock on cruises. And there had been, um, on the mainland from Cozumel, there had been an incident where when we docked, they had canceled the shore excursions that day on the mainland because there had been a gang shooting. And so mm-hmm. there is, on the periphery, when you get uh, to many of the Mexican resort areas, there is the issue. And, um, you know, when you're going on vacation, you're going to have fun. You're not going to worry about who might be shooting somebody <laughs> and that you get caught exactly. in a crossfire. Yes. So what do you think you'll do? Well, I mean, it sounds, I mean, we already booked and we just started thinking more about it in the last month because, you know, you turn on the news, there's lots of bad things you hear about. Um, our thought is, I guess, if we stay close to home on the resort, that might be a good idea. I agree 100% and that then uh, you would find that the trip almost certainly would be exactly what you want it to be, a time of relaxation and enjoyment at the oasis of that one of those resorts represent. And I don't think I would freak out if it were me about the various warnings. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.